Jesus said to them, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. What we just saw was exactly that. But I want, I want to share two very brief things with you concerning this video. Number one, that the 1040 window, as you saw, was vastly Muslim, Hindu, and Buddhist, and is mainly unreached. The second thing, you notice that North America and Europe were completely white in the video. But Christian historians are calling these continents post-Christian continents. They both need to be extensively transformed, yet by the power of the gospel. South Korean churches today are sending missionaries to us, church. What I want us to do today is as we are looking at seven earmarks of a healthy church, what we're looking at today and what we're going to dig into the word and we're going to be looking at a number of scripture passages is this concept that Jesus shared with us about making disciples of all nations. And what does that even mean? And how do we do it? And how do we go over to the 1040 window? What can we do very practically today, this week, in order to see that happen, but spread throughout the earth? And not just white, but if there's another color that demonstrates transformed people. And today we're going to also see this concept of transformed nations. This is what the gospel is meant to do, not just to go and be preached, but to change people and change cultures. Amen, church? And so what I'm going to do right now is I'm just going to share what the scripture says about this. <coughs> Psalm 22, verses 27 to 28. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over all the nations. Psalm, Psalm 72, verses 8 through 11. He, referring to the king of this kingdom of God, Jesus himself, he will rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The desert tribes will bow down before him and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of distant shores will bring tribute to him. The kings of Sheba and Seba will present him gifts. All kings will bow down to him and all nations will serve him. This concept is shared with us also in Zechariah chapter 9, in which you're familiar with chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, you, remember, you might remember that Matthew used this passage as a prediction of what Jesus did on Palm Sunday. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a colt, the foal of a donkey, and he did so as the prince of peace. Because the, the donkey is, a, is, a, is a, uh, a, 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 an animal of peace, a burden. Uh, um, and so consequently, Jesus, he didn't ride in on a white stallion, which would be this conquering king. He'll do that in Revelation 19, but he came into Jerusalem as the prince of peace. Now notice what verse 10 says. Immediately following, he, still referring to Jesus, the king, will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. 
Isaiah chapter 11, verse 9. <coughs> Excuse me. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. This is the extent of the knowledge of the Lord. Understand, it's not just knowing about God. This is truly knowing God. And that this knowledge of the Lord will blanket the earth, including the 1040 window, blanking the earth. How do we know that? It's because he says, even as the waters cover the seas. And to what extent do the waters cover the seas? Some translations say sea basins. Everywhere. Everywhere. The waters cover the seas. Church, everywhere, Isaiah's predicting the knowledge of the Lord will fill the earth. This is the extent, of, this is the promised extent of God's kingdom throughout this world of ours. <clears throat> In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus used a parable. One verse is all it is. Here's what it says. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed with a large amount of flour until it worked through the whole dough, the whole batch. And can I ask you, when yeast permeates through kneading, permeates a batch of dough, does it cause this little portion over here to rise? Because the yeast is not just present, the yeast actually impacts the dough so that there is some sort of transformation. The dough rises. You can actually see it. But does the yeast simply impact this little lump over here and this little lump over here and this little lump over here? Well, of course it doesn't because if it does, someone did something wrong. The truth is the yeast impacts the entire lump of dough. And this is Jesus' point. The batch of dough represents the world. Now, you can go back and read previous parables. This is Jesus' point. The yeast is either the gospel or the sons of the kingdom, which, again, is keeping with those parables that he had just taught. The truth, then, is that the gospel doesn't just spread, but it impacts, it leavens, it causes dries, it impacts the entire world. This is Jesus' promise of the extent of his rule, of his kingdom. And this is what Paul concludes in Romans chapter 12. I'm going to read the beginning and the end. You can read the rest. It's Romans 16, verses 25 and 26. I'm reading just the beginning and the end. Now to him who is able to establish you in my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ so that all nations might believe and obey him. What is the goal? What is the goal of the proclamation? We're to go throughout the world proclaiming the gospel. What is the goal? The goal is that all nations, church, say that with me, all nations. Can, can you just say it with me one more time? All nations, so that all nations might believe and obey. They're being transformed like the yeast, like the, the yeast that permeates throughout the batch of dough, that, it, that the gospel would transform all nations. This is the goal of the gospel. And I would venture to say that if this is God's goal, it's not just pie in the sky. It's not just something, wow, it would be really neat if. No, this is what will happen. 
And my desire, and I'm sure you're sharing it with me, my desire is that, that God would do this, that we would see it with our very eyes in this generation. And, and the Bible says that this is going to happen before he comes back. Now, I'm not going to get into, you know, the man of lawlessness and Second Thessalonians chapter 2 talks about the rebellion or the apostasy. Apostasia is the Greek word there. I'm not going to get into that. That happens right before Christ comes back. But I am saying, leading up to that, there is a worldwide proclamation and transformation by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Now, I'm sharing that with you because as we're talking about this concept of making disciples, and turn with me, if you would, right now to Matthew chapter 28, this concept of making disciples is not something that is beyond us. You don't have to be a pastor to do it. And can I just say to you that even as a pastor in sharing the gospel, I have blown it and I've missed opportunities. And many of you have seized more opportunities than I have. So please, this is not something that is simply given to pastors. This is something for all of us. But know this, that it's not how clever you are. It is not how skilled you are. It is not even how, if you can even somehow weigh this in some spiritual balance, how devoted to Christ you are, the gospel is still the power of God unto salvation. You can be a new convert. And I'm just going to give you a few keys here this morning. Not only do I want us to see this grand picture of the gospel going forth and transforming nations, but I want us to realize that we're a part of that. And and, and it is not a complicated part. For us, it is a simple part. And we speak the gospel. And it's that gospel that will change the lives, not you. You don't have to be some killer persuasive speaker. You don't have to be selling a top 10 bestseller on motivation. You don't have to be that person. You can be who you are, empowered by the Spirit of God, and God will just lead you. And you'll open your mouth and so many times share simple words about Jesus. And that seed is planted. The Bible says in Mark 4, the, the farmer plants the seed. And he sleeps during the night. And he, he doesn't understand it. So I'm going to suggest the farmer is not Jesus because Jesus does understand this. But that farmer is you and me. We've, we've sown the seed. And we sleep. And we do go about our work. But it says this. The seed that's planted in the ground, the soil, it says, all by itself produces the harvest. And the farmer doesn't know how it happens. And we're going to get into that a little bit today. But I'm sharing this with you to empower you with this truth. That you don't have to know all the intricate details about how this all works. As Kate just did such a marvelous job. This this concept of God, of of us being called to, to follow him. And yet his amazing, even ridiculous, overflowing, abundant grace. How does that all work together? I, I don't know. I'm a pastor. I, I don't know. The farmer, when he says it, he doesn't know, but he knows this. It grows. I, I know this. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It's the gospel that's going to change the person's heart 
not how persuasive you are, not amazing, what amazing testimony. You know, when I was young and, and just learning to share the gospel, I, I, I wished I had an amazing testimony. I, I guess what I was wishing for was that I was caught up in drugs and sexual immorality and you know, stealing and, I don't know, a murderer on death row and God saved me. Really, I mean, who would want that? No one. Some people experience that, and by God's grace, they're transformed, church, by the power of the gospel. And yet, I don't have to be that guy. I, I, I actually grew up in a Christian home. I actually was raised by good parents. They made mistakes just like I've made. But you know what? The seed of the gospel transformed me. At age 14, it changed my life. I had known about Jesus, but I never had that personal relationship and encounter with him that changed me. All my brother did was he gave me a simple tract. He hardly said anything. And God changed me, church, because I read truth that sets us free. So here's what I want. I want us to look at... Matthew 28, and kind of use this. We're going to look at it some. I want to use it as a springboard to get into some, what I, I'm hoping is going to be very practical application concerning making disciples. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Jesus is in Galilee at this point in Matthew's gospel. It concludes everything. <clears throat> I mean, the cross, the resurrection, passion week, etc. And he is now kind of giving parting words. He's not about to ascend. He doesn't do that in Galilee. He does that on the Mount of Olives. So this is not, Jesus doesn't suddenly get caught up in the air. So it's not his last words, but his next one says he is in this process of teaching the kingdom of God. During those 40 days in which after his resurrection and before he ascended, this, this is that. And this is what he says to them. People gathered around him. For, we'll start back up to 16. Then, a, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When he saw them, they worshipped him, but some doubted. I'm going to suggest to you that there's more than 11. Though Matthew says 11, there's more than 11. Um... That's my personal opinion because I'm not quite sure that the 11 doubted, but there were many who did. Regardless, maybe there were more than just 11. Paul says that there were 500 that Jesus appeared to at one time. Maybe this is that occasion, but we do know the 11 are there. And then he says this, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority. Can you say that with me, church? All authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, so in view of all authority being given to Jesus, this is what he's saying. Listen now, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you and I will be with you to the very end of the age. I just want to see very quickly a few things here. Number one, what is a disciple? I, I can remember uh, many times is I'm just talking with people. I, I, I don't personally like just proclaiming the gospel to someone. I like to use questions to draw them out. And I think this is 
for the most part, Jesus's methodology. We do see in the book of Acts people standing on street corners, and though they didn't have megaphones, but they did preach Christ. Jesus, and I'm not saying they weren't personal, but Jesus was very personal. And we're going to see three examples of that in just a bit. But what is a disciple? And I can remember talking with a number of people, and, and I'll ask them, uh, so are, are you a Christian? And in this dialogue, and they're, and they're saying, well, yeah, yeah, I mean, I go to church, and well, I mean, I don't go like every Sunday. But, as a matter of fact, I, it's been a while. But uh, yeah, so I, I, I go to church, and, and I'm a Christian. Now, understand, they've just shared with me their lifestyle involved in drugs and living with a young lady and blah, 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 blah. And I say, okay, all right. So can I ask you this? Do you follow Jesus? And, and they, they feel a little bit trapped and backed up against the wall like, oh, trick question, huh? And, and they say, well, not exactly. Okay, honestly, I don't. And so I say, can I just let you know something? That a Christian is a disciple of Jesus, and a disciple is a follower of Jesus. So I'm just going gonna, gonna to drop this little bombshell of truth with you right now, and I love to talk about it with you. But do you realize that you can't be a Christian and not follow Jesus? Because that's what a Christian is, because that's what a disciple is. Church, if we're going to make disciples, we're making followers of Jesus. We're making people who want to follow Jesus, but they've got to be transformed first. They got to be transformed first. Three things. It, it, and, and you guys, most of you know this, this. The main verb that's used here is this command, make disciples. There are three participles that in your version are translated as commands, which is fine in translating, but just understand that these three participles help flesh out. They modify this main verb of may, make disciples. So how do we make disciples? He uses three participles, and he tells us. Number one, hey, you got to go. The, the, the people aren't just going to come to you unless you're like Jesus and you did miracles, or like Paul and, excuse me, Peter, and your shadow falls on them and they got healed. Anybody have that happen? Any shadows? And It hasn't happened to me. It, it could happen. I believe Jesus does miracles. Today. It hasn't happened in my life. And so people aren't knocking on my door to ask that my shadow fall on them or that, tell me about Jesus. So as a result, church, I've got to go. I have to go to tell them. The second thing is I, we are called to baptize them. Now, understand that we proclaim Jesus and God does something to transform them called salvation, and then we baptize them in water, okay? And in baptism, they make what Paul calls the good confession. They're following Jesus now. What are baptism in the book of Acts is our present-day altar calls. That's a whole nother sermon in itself. But understand this, that we are called then to go to baptize, but then... We're going to tell them how to follow Jesus because that's what a disciple is, right? So you teach them everything that Jesus commanded them, okay? So again, this isn't just the 11. Understand, Judas is not in this picture. 
he, he made a really horrible mistake, and I'm sure you guys remember what that mistake is. And he betrayed Jesus. And so for us, we're called to go, we're called to baptize, we're called to teach. Just as moms and dads, you're going to teach your kids. You've you got to be in the Word, and, and just as best as you can, you're not going to be perfect. I, I would be one who loves to study the Word, and as a dad trying to teach my kids, I didn't do a perfect job. Jesus doesn't expect you to do a perfect job, but he, he wants you to teach them. And if you can do that with your kids, just simple truths, you can do that with anyone. So we go, we baptize, and, and you know the Bible doesn't say that only pastors can baptize. It doesn't say that. Ananias was not a pastor. He was not an apostle. He came, <clears throat> he gave a prophetic word to Paul. You remember Paul, Saul? Life transformed on the road to Damascus. Paul, he's blind. He just, Ananias just lays his hands on him. He's filled with the Spirit, and later Ananias baptizes him. We're not told that Ananias was a pastor. Anyone can baptize who's a follower of Jesus, okay? All right. The next thing I want us to see very quick, quickly here is that the of what the focus is. Now, obviously the focus is make disciples, but the phrase is more than just make disciples, and it's in a command form. Here's what it says. Literally in the Greek, there is no of. Make disciples of all nations. Of is not in the Greek. Nations is not in the genitive, which would mean translating it of. Nations is the focus. Here's how it literally reads. Make all nations disciples. Now, obviously, to do that, we have to make individuals disciples. But Jesus' focus here, for some reason, is nations. Now, when I get to heaven, I'll ask him that question. But I think that maybe his focus, like in Isaiah 2, all nations will stream to the holy mountain of God. This is the heartbeat of our God. It's not just the individual. It's the individual in the context of his culture yearning for God and discovering the power of the gospel, being transformed and allowing his family to be transformed, allowing his neighbors to be transformed, allowing his coworkers to be transformed, allowing God to change an entire nation. This is the heartbeat of God. Make all nations disciples. Now, of course, we have to have the individuals because this is not, uh, uh, the nations together don't just line up and say, okay, all together on three, we believe in God, the Father Almighty, you know, and, and we're all going to become Christians at this. That's not what he's saying here, but his goal is that the yeast impacts entire nations, which would be the context of their culture. Now, nations here, please understand, nations here does not mean those people within a particular, listen to this word, geopolitical boundary. Geopolitical means geo, meaning geography, so a location, a boundary. The United States has a boundary. North and south of us, the oceans on the east and west, we have a boundary. That's a geo or ge geographical boundary. Geopolitical means that we are a sovereign nation. This Greek word ethnos does not mean that specifically. It means people groups. People in the context of cultures, which is defined by 
their language, among many other things, their customs, how they even understand things. And the gospel comes into that culture, that ethnos, that people group, and God's heartbeat is that it explode in that people group and that an entire people group be transformed by that gospel, the yeast leavening the whole lump. That's God's goal. And and we have yet to see that. Now, I would venture to say that for the most part, perhaps many nations, at least on a national scale, have been transformed. People groups have been transformed. But right now, America, excuse me, the United States of America, Europe, they're calling us post-Christian nations. What that means is that the gospel to some degree has leavened them. And I'm not going to argue about to what degree and such, but can we just understand something? That there's nowhere close to 50% of people, for example, in the United States of America that have a life-empowering relationship with Jesus Christ that has transformed them. Now, maybe more than 50% call themselves Christians, and it's not my job to determine who is in and who is out. That's not my job. My job is to speak the truth and let them weigh the truth. And for their heart, hopefully good soil, the soil, the seed lands on the good soil and it produces 30, 60, 100 fold of fruit. That's all that I can, I can only share the word. It is God then who changes the heart. But I tell you what, a good tree produces good fruit. And church, we've got a lot of bad trees in America and you can see this. You can see it on the political landscape. And I'm not even talking about Democrat and Republican. I'm just saying everywhere, sin is rampant. Righteousness exalts a nation. And church, can I say, we as a nation are not being exalted by our righteousness, by living out the word of God. We're not doing that. And so people call us a post-Christian nation. And winning a post-Christian nation is going to require a people like you and me fully engaged in the culture, living it out so that they can see authentic Christianity. They need to see Jesus. They need to see Jesus in the flesh, if you will, meaning you. You representing Jesus in a way as an ambassador of Christ in your culture that people see Jesus in you and as Titus 2 says, you make the teaching of Jesus attractive. Now, we saw that in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 6, several other places, that as the church was being the church, it impacted the people around them. Now, I'm sure that they were sharing the gospel. Mostly, though, the apostles were, at least at that stage, in the very beginning, the first year of Christianity, 3,000 saved on the day of Pentecost. You remember that. A couple of days or weeks later, we don't know, Acts chapter 4 tells us 2,000 more come to Christ. 5,000 in Jerusalem in a very short time. Jerusalem is being highly impacted by the gospel of the kingdom of God. Consequently, the church, they just sought to be the church, to, to love one another, serve one another, live life in a way that reflects Jesus. And the, the, the Jews looking on just said, wow, 
all of these people who are so transformed, they're Christians. But we just crucified their king, their cult leader, as Jesus would have been known to them. But their lives are totally changed. And you know what? Miriam, I heard someone tell me that this Jesus is alive and he's living inside of them and that's why they're changed. We need to investigate this. Now, do you see how the gospel began to change people's lives? People not just spoke it, but they lived it, church. And they made the teaching of Jesus attractive by the way they lived. How do you change? How, does, how are we to be a part of a post-Christian nation so that that nation, America, is transformed by the power of the gospel? It is by you living it out of you, showing the love of Jesus Christ, but remaining true to his truth. Don't compromise on it. The world doesn't want to hear about sin. They, repentance is an archaic word in their mind. Throw it out. But without repentance, what is the gospel? Is it just, hey, I just want to follow Jesus? What, you know, if you're going to follow Jesus, guess what you have to leave behind? Your heart has been changed. Repent, that's what repentance is. And you're turning your back on the world. You're turning your back on your sin. We're going to see this in three examples very quickly briefly here, okay? But this, then, is this concept of making disciples, of, of God transforming people, and you and I can be a part of this even in a post-Christian nation. I put my glasses down. Here we go. <laughs> oh, goodness. I remember my pastor. God, he was such, God had just so transformed his life, but you know, <laughs> he left his glasses everywhere when he preached. Where's my glasses? Oh, they're on my head. <laughs> oh, Lord, man. Anyway, right. Found them, guys. All right. So, number four. Jesus says in verse 18, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He doesn't say will be given to me. It's been given to him. He has it. And you know what he says? Because he has all of this authority, all of it, every drop of it, church, he now delegates some of this authority to those gathered there, and he tells them, make disciples. Do you know what authority is? Authority is the rightful use of power. A policeman can knock on your door, pull out his gun, and say, let me in. You can appeal to the law all you want, but with a gun, he has the power to come into your home. Though he has the power, he does not have the authority unless he has a search warrant for just cause. That's his authority. So you can have power without authority. Authority is the rightful use, the legal or lawful use of power. Jesus has all of it. Every drop of it is his in heaven and on earth. Why? Because church, he is the king. He is the king. And he turns to you and me and he says, here, I want you to have this authority. Juliana, take this authority. Maddie, take this authority. It's yours. Now, what I, here's what I want you to do with that authority. I want you to go and I want you to make disciples. Wow, Jesus, that's a bit intimidating. 
I mean, people are going to look down on me. They're going to tease me. They're going to make fun of me. You mean at my workplace? Even my boss? As God might give opportunity? Yes. How am I going to do that? With the authority that I give you. And when you speak the word, you now, empowered by the Spirit, with the authority of Jesus, you present that word. And don't believe for a second that when you speak that truth, the gospel, that it's your own doing, that it's just something you made up, that it's just human words. No, these are spiritual words because they're the gospel. They're the truth of Jesus and that he came to live this amazingly sinless life to become the sinless sacrifice so that when he dies, he's not just leaving us some amazing example. I left my glasses there, right? Don't remind me. Not just so that we left some amazing example, but he did something for us, church. The father took yours and my sins. He placed them on his son, Jesus, Isaiah 53, 6. Oh, we like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. Jesus was, the father laid our sins upon him, and then he punishment. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. He, not only was my sin placed upon him, he was punished for me. I'm picking them up. He was punished for me. He was punished for you. That's the gospel. He was now raised to newness of life to demonstrate his power and authority over death so that you will never die. Though you physically may, you will live forever with him in heaven for all ages. That is the gospel. It is being brought from death to life in God and living for him now forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever forever. There's no end to it, church. No end. That's going to blow your mind when you really think about it, by the way. That's the gospel. And we have been given authority to speak it and see lives transformed. I need to move on. Number five, this concept of making disciples. It comes to us and sounds like we are the ones who are doing all of this. Make You make disciples. You're not going to be able to walk up to somebody and reach inside their life and make them a disciple. But you have a responsibility. Jesus gave you a commission. He's empowered you with authority to do this. You can do it without ever being a pastor. Whew, praise God. Yes, amen. But you know what? It is, listen to this. Throughout the New Testament, God many times focuses on his grace, his grace, his grace. And then other times he focuses on faith, our response, which is our surrender to him and the bending of the knee and pledging allegiance to our new king. That is faith. It is me reaching out and simply receiving. That's faith. Salvation is by grace through faith. How are you saved? It is because God reached into your life because you did this, and he changed you. He brought you up from death to life. He forgave you of your sins. He actually changed you inside, and he made you a disciple. That's salvation. Jesus, God, is the one who, I can't do that to you. 
The only thing I can do is give you truth. That's the only thing you can do is give them truth. And that is, the, that is such a small part. But for Jesus, he's speaking it from this position, this perspective. Go and make disciples. Oh my goodness, how helpless do I feel? I can't change anybody's hearts. And Jesus, and I'm paraphrasing, that's okay. Because I'm the one giving you authority. I'm the one by my spirit that is going to come in. And I'm going to be the one to change them by my spirit. I'm just simply asking you, speak truth. So here's what I want to do. I want to use three quick examples. (sighs) Three quick examples. You don't even have to turn there. I'm going to be brief with them, but I want, I want us to see that this is something that we can lay a hold of. This is something that's not beyond us. Jesus made this very practical. And I'm going to use three examples from Jesus, like John chapter 3. Write this down, John chapter 3. Do you know what happens in John chapter 3? Jesus has an encounter with a man by the name of Nicodemus who's a Pharisee. He's a teacher of the law. He should know the word of God. He should know things like Ezekiel 36, that the spirit of God is going to be placed in somebody and he's going <coughs> to, excuse me, the spirit of God is going to cause them to be able to and want to follow his law, God's law. But for Nicodemus, this, his religion, his relationship with God was very external. It had to do with proclaiming the law, and a lot of it had to do with ceremonial law. You had to kill the right type of animal. The priest had to sacrifice that animal, spill its blood. There were items in the temple that were of a very symbolic nature. And for Nicodemus, this concept of salvation had everything to do with that which was external, visible, and had to do with the law. And Jesus says, hmm. Well, Nicodemus comes to him and says, Jesus, because it's at night. I know. I know that you're a man of God. For no one, no one can do the miracles that you do unless God sent them. Did you hear me? Could you hear me? So, okay, good. I think Nicodemus heard Jesus too. Or Nicodemus heard, yeah, Jesus heard Nicodemus. And, and, Nicod- and God just, Jesus, just cuts right to the chase. And he says this, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you will never see the kingdom of God. And then he used a different phrase, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is confused. Wait a minute. He understood the kingdom of God. It was preached back in Daniel and other places. He knew what the kingdom of God was, but he didn't. So let me see if I get this straight. I've got to go into my mother's womb and be born a second time for me to even enter into this kingdom of God thing? And Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, Father, grace. Nicodemus, you're a teacher of the law and you don't know these things? 
And he talks about this unseen move of the Spirit. And he concludes, kind of concludes, with this. Nicodemus, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The gospel in a nutshell. Do you know what Jesus did? Jesus perceived a need in Nicodemus' life. Nicodemus was all about what was going on on the outward, following the law to the letter. And Jesus was saying, Nicodemus, you have totally missed it. Because it is in a relationship with God who loved the world through his son that he sent, that if you believe in him, Nicodemus, me, if you believe in him, you will not perish but have everlasting life. We don't know what happened to Nicodemus, but we do know later in chapter 11 of that same gospel, he actually defends Jesus. And later in chapter 19, I believe it's the end of 19, Nicodemus is the one who takes Jesus' body and puts the spices and perfumes in it along with Joseph of Arimathea. Something was changed in that man's life. John 4, a Samaritan woman. She is drawing water at the well, and Jesus is there. There's a lot more that could be said about this. Cut into the chase. Jesus starts talking about living water. Can you imagine the confusion on this lady's face? Living, living water? I mean, help me get some of this living water so I don't have to keep coming back here. And she was strictly thinking water that will quench her thirst, that she will never physically thirst again. And she missed the point. But Jesus used the term born again for Nicodemus. He doesn't use that term for the Samaritan woman. He uses the term living water. And he said, you know what, if you only knew who was standing here right now and offering this, you would ask him to give you this living water. She, well, yeah, give me the water. And Jesus is thinking in his mind, ah, yes, I want to give, Father, I want to give her this living water, the spirit of God that will change her. But there's a problem. And that problem must be removed. And only he can do it, Father. I'm reading between the lines, understand. So then Jesus says this, go get your husband. What? She's asking for living water, Jesus, and you're saying, yeah, um, go get your husband. Uh, but that corners her. She has to confess that she has had five husbands, and the one she's living with presently is not even her husband. Let me just pare this down. Jesus is saying, do you really want this living water? Because spiritually, you will never thirst again and you will be fully satisfied in God. But here's your problem. You right now have given your entire life to finding your sense of value and love and satisfaction in a man's love. And can I just tell you this? 
We live in a world, and that's their goal. I just want to be loved. I want, this, I want a person to love me. Romance, novels, sell off the shelf, church. And I tell you what, as amazing as romance is, it will never satisfy your soul. And for her, oh boy, did she encounter that. Apparently five divorces, I doubt they all five died, unless it was at her hand, but I'm not going there. <laughs> she's living with a guy, she's given up on marriage. It's like she has been down this road so many times. Jesus doesn't scold her. Listen to his, he doesn't scold her. He doesn't stand up and say, you know what the, uh, what is it, the, Sixth commandment is, do not commit adultery. He doesn't quote it to her. You know what he does? Is he simply highlights her dissatisfaction in the world. And when he does that, she immediately gets religious on him. She doesn't know what to do with that. Yep. He... he he pegged me. That's me. But then, over the next couple of days, we don't know if she gave her heart to Christ at that point. She eventually takes him to her city, Sychar, Sukar, and the town recognizes, Jesus, you're the Savior of the world. Wow. That is a phrase that we could, mm, powerful. Without a miracle, <laughs> these Samaritans, these enemies of Jesus, actually look to Jesus as the Savior of the world. Wow. Oh, there's so much in that. But this woman is just undone because she realizes that she has been looking for something that will satisfy her soul's thirst, and she truly has believed that it is the love of a man. And I'm going to tell you right now that if you're looking for that satisfaction from the love of a man or the love of a woman, you will never find it. Your soul will never be satisfied. You know who gives the living water? You know who will satisfy the ache in your soul? It is only Jesus. Only Jesus can make you born again. Only Jesus can satisfy that ache in your soul. He, in the person of his spirit that he now places in the believer, that satisfies us as long as we keep looking to him as the source. That's faith, right? The last one, Mark 10. I got to be quick here. Mark 10, a rich young ruler comes to Jesus. <clears throat> and this rich young ruler is both rich and young. And I'm kind of assuming that's why he's called. Yeah, you understand. But he's probably the ruler of a synagogue, okay? Young guy. He probably knows the word really well. People, he's young and people respect him. Very unusual. I'm going to say that he is probably not a political ruler, but a religious ruler in a synagogue. Young, wealthy, maybe, maybe he bought it. It's possible. He's now a ruler in a synagogue. He's respected. And he comes up to Jesus and he says, Oh, good teacher, what must I do to gain eternal life? And Jesus immediately assesses the situation. Mm. The first thing he asks is, why do you call me good? Because, church, that is the man's root problem. The root problem for Nicodemus was that he didn't understand that this relationship with God was spiritual, and that 
was the, the, the core of the issue, not how well he observed the law, especially the ceremonial. For the woman, she, was, she, she misunderstood where her satisfaction should come, and she, it was misplaced, and she kept looking to the love of a man, and Jesus was saying, no, I am the only one that can satisfy that ache in your soul because that ache is there because of sin, and you're broken, and you need me, and only Jesus can heal that. And for this rich young ruler, he thought he was good. He truly thought he was good. So what's the problem calling Jesus good? Now understand, Jesus graciously challenges him on this word good. Not because Jesus didn't see himself as God, because he says only God is good. It's because the man doesn't understand good. Good is perfect. Not one iota falling short of, but perfect obedience to the law. Is that really you, rich young ruler? In essence, the man was right. Jesus was good. He wasn't denying that he was good because Jesus is God. Jesus' own self-designation was good shepherd. So yes, Jesus accepted that, but what Jesus helped him understand was, you don't understand good. Because without saying it, the man truly believed he was good. We know this because Jesus is what does the law say. And he starts quoting various laws from the Ten Commandments. And the rich young ruler says, I've kept all of them since I was young. I am like a shoe in. Yes. And Jesus says, okay, whoo, man, you did really well so far. And then he says this. You want to follow me. Um, you want to have eternal life, so you got to follow me. So here's what you need to do. You need to take all of your belongings and sell it. Super huge garage sale. Liquidation. Everything must go. And then take all of that money. And church, it was going to be a lot of money. And I want you to give it to the poor. What? Now, the rich young ruler is thinking... Number one, some of that's my inheritance. I can't give that away. And I have worked really hard in my business, and I have made quite a bit of money, and you just want me to throw it all away? He, he may even be thinking, but Jesus, I could give so much money to your ministry. <laughs> he might even be rationalizing it, and Jesus says, cut it. Sell everything. Give it to the poor. Because you know what the man really wrestled with? He was an idolater. He loved his money more than God. So instead of Jesus saying, so have you committed idolatry before? Well, no, I don't worship idols. And for Jesus to get into this argument with him, trying to convince him, well, yes, you are an idolater, Jesus takes him down a journey of self-discovery simply by asking him a few questions and letting the man see for himself, looking in a mirror, I love my money more than I love God. And the man walked away sad. <laughs> Church, listen to this. You know what the next phrase is? And Jesus loved him. Jesus was heartbroken. There was something in this man's heart, and he couldn't say yes to God because he loved his money too much. He loved the stuff of life. The world was a stumbling block. I can't follow Jesus because I am in ball and chain with all of my lusts and greed and everything. It's the money that drives my life. And he was caught and he couldn't get out. 
And Jesus' response was not condemnation. It's Jesus loved him. He loved him. And Jesus was heartbroken. Now, my prayer is that maybe after Pentecost, maybe after the resurrection, maybe sometime this man truly did see his sin, that he wasn't, he loved his money more than he loved God and wanted to follow Jesus. Maybe at some point that man's life was changed. The Bible says the angels would have rejoiced in heaven. You know what? Jesus saw his real need. You place, every, you place everything that you have as more important than God. And you cannot love two masters. You'll either love the one and hate the other or despise the one and cling to the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And the man walked away sad because he was an idolater. And Jesus had exposed his need. You love your money too much. I am not suggesting, and Jesus was not suggesting, that if you just do this good work and be generous and give to the poor, by doing that good work, you'll be saved. Jesus was simply weighing his heart. You can't follow me. You see, because you have to repent and you have to turn away from that. And if you're willing to do that by his spirit, he can actually help the man now do it. Zechariah is a good example. I'm not going to get into that. Luke 19, you can read the story for yourself. It's only like the first 11, 12 verses. But that's Nicodemus, and he was a wealthy man, and he did change. I want to share two stories very quickly with you. I know I've run out of time. I had an encounter before COVID-19 with two young men at a dealership that I do work for. The first one was a gentleman who's probably 23, 24. Three years before, his dad had died. Just by what he has shared with me, I knew that he was not living for Jesus. I wasn't judging him. It was just very clear he wasn't living for Jesus, okay? If you can just take my word for that. He, he obviously was not following Jesus. But he wanted to. He kept asking me questions. I did not make a choice to start calling him out. I just asked him questions. I wanted him to tell me his story. I wanted him to tell me about his dad. That when his dad died for one solid year, he closed himself into his garage and as a guitarist just played his guitar. He realized he couldn't stay in his garage, so he looked for another outlet for satisfaction and burying his hurt because he was close to his dad, understand. His mom, um, he tells me, does go to a church regularly, and it, it's, I, I know the church is a good Bible-preaching church, and that she is a Christian, been praying for him. So he, he realized, well, I can't stay in my garage all the time, so he picked up surfing. And in surfing, he found great delight. And at some point in this conversation and me drawing him out, and church, this is not me being super skilled. It is just me asking some questions and then saying, you know what? It sounds to me as if you're looking for satisfaction because of that ache in your heart. And I'm just going to tell you, you're never going to find it outside of Jesus. You're not going to. And he allowed me 
to be very frank with them and just at points be blunt and call him to the cross. He allowed me to do this for him. The second example, when he left, another man came in there. And I just thought, interesting, okay. I was sad that this young man had gone on, and I saw him only one time since, and I just prayed that the truth that was planted there has reaped eternal life in his heart. I don't know. But now another guy, he's, probably, he's in his 30s. He's been in the army. He tells me his story. He's an atheist. Really interesting, okay. We, we talk about that. At one point, he says, you know what? You're the first Christian that I've ever met that I actually feel comfortable talking about my atheism because most of them just want to shove it down my throat. I'm just asking him questions. I'm just sharing with him a, a few things. I have a little booklet. Uh, I, I think it was entitled, What Color is, or, yeah, what color is Purple? And it, I'm not going to get into the reason why for that title, but it is specifically for atheists. It's only about 30 pages. I actually found it in a hospital. Googled it, bought it, gave it to him. In this process, I'm asking him questions. I find out that when he was 16, he had actually gone to church regularly. People looked up to him. And within just a few years, he said he just began to see so much hypocrisy in the church, and he left. So he's walking away from Jesus because of his perception of man and man's imperfections. And at some point, as I'm just trying to be a friend to him, and I'm praying, God, I'm really stumped here. I don't know. I mean, I can, I, I can argue apologetics with him. Okay. That's just not going to win his heart. What is going to win his heart? And I can remember, church, that I was praying. I just said, God, I don't know what to do. I really don't know what to do. I can't see in this man's heart. And could you just give me another opportunity to talk with him? And that very, that was Thursday morning, that very day, he wasn't there. And I didn't see him. And then suddenly he shows up. And we step into this amazing conversation in which he opens his heart up. And God, I can tell God is beginning to speak to him. And I'm blown away. And all I'm doing, church, is I'm sharing with you, number one, my inadequacy, and I'm sure many of us have felt inadequate to make disciples, and I just ask, Spirit of God, show me what to say and what to do, because I really don't know. And I just sought to draw him out, see a need, and show him the answer to that need is Jesus. It's the gospel. I don't have to pinpoint all of this sin in his life. The Holy Spirit can do that. Sometimes we do need to, but that's not where I'm starting. And I see the need, and I simply show him Jesus is the answer to that need. I can guarantee you, church, you can do that. I can guarantee that when you plant that seed, you don't have to know how it germinates and how it grows and how on earth it can produce so much fruit. One kernel of corn planted, non-GMO, by the way, planted in the ground. Had to throw that in there. Planted in the ground. And it yields thousands of amazing, succulent, 
especially when you put butter and salt on it. It's just amazing. Ears of corn. And Jesus is saying, you don't have to know how it works. You just have to plant it. So here's my question. Church, the gospel is spreading throughout the earth. I forgot to read this to you. I am, I am preaching so long, church. You've got to listen to this. You've got to listen to this. This is from the Joshua Project. This is how the gospel is spreading in our day. And it can spread here in Orlando, even though we are a post-Christian nation. Just listen to this, Joshua Project. An average of 160,000 a day hear the message of redemption in Christ of the, for the very first time. Every hour, over 1,600 people decide to follow Jesus Christ. Did you know that? In 1,800, those who had never heard the gospel were almost 75% of the globe's population. Today, the percentage of those who have not heard is about 28%. 200 years. An average of 3,500 new churches every week are being planted around the world. Evangelicals numbered 89 million in 1960. 89 million, 1960. By the year 2010, 50 years later, they were 546 million. In the Middle East, probably in the past 15 years, one agency says more Muslims have come to faith in Christ than in the past 15 centuries of Islam. In Israel, more Jews have embraced Jesus, Yeshua, you know, Yeshua, as Messiah since 1967 when the Jews took control of Jerusalem than in all the years between 100 AD and 1967. More Iranians came to Christ between 1980 and 2010, 30 years, than the previous 1,000 years combined. In Africa, in the 20th century, Christianity in Africa exploded from an estimated population of 8 or 9 million, 8 or 9 million in Africa in 1900 to some 335 million in 2000. Within 100 years, it has gone from 8 or 9 million to 335 million, marking a shift in the center of gravity of Christianity, quote, end of quote. From the West to Latin America, parts of Asia and Africa, the center of gravity. 20,000 new African believers are born every day. I mean, I mean spiritually born every day. 3%, 3% of Africa was Christian in 1900. Today, Africa is more than 50% Christian in some countries. The church in Africa is growing four times faster than the general population. Sub-Sahara, if you look at a map below the Sahara, it is, many of them are Christians, but above, from the Sahara above, they're almost all Muslim, if you didn't know that. The church in Africa is growing four times faster than the general population. Sub-Sahara Africa is becoming a sending base for missionaries to Islamic North Africa. In Brazil, in 1960, there were two million. In 2010, 51.2 million. They have a book out about the 1980 um, awakening that went through there, and millions, millions, after the Falkland Islands fell to England, millions had come to Christ. Brazil had been humbled, and God used that in the proclamation of the gospel to bring millions, church, millions to Christ. In Nepal, in the early, I'm, I'm just have another minute. In the early 18, excuse me, in the early 1900s, 
In the early 1980s, there were only 75 known Nepali believers. Today, there are an estimated 850,000 believers. And in China, in 1950, when China closed to missionaries, there were about 1 million Chinese believers. Today, some estimate over 75 million believers and over 10,000 new Christians in China every day. There are more followers of Christ in China than in North America, church. Most of them are underground, as I understand. This is what God is wanting to do in stirring up the nations to come to Christ. Church, it is not beyond our grasp. It is not a task that is too hard. Jesus who has all authority, has given you and commissioned you with every bit of authority, the right use of power that you need to just so simply maybe share your testimony, draw someone out, show them that Jesus meets that need in the gospel. We can do this, church. And we can see these figures escalate more and more. And we can see post-Christian America, United States of America, and Europe experience a revival that eclipses the first and second great awakening. Can you believe this with me? God is able to do this. The yeast will leaven the whole lump. Can you stand with me, church? All right. Father, we are truly humbled by this commission that you have given us to make disciples. We feel so in and inadequate in and of ourselves, and yet your promise is there and your charge is there. And today, God, we are just simply saying, with hands lifted up, we want to receive this. I, I want to do it, God. I need your help. I feel so unable. Give me the power of your spirit to do this. And God, help me, by your grace, make disciples. To make all nations disciples. Please, God. May your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name I pray.